Okay, so we're, we're continuing to look at the marks of the church. What are the marks of the church? Three marks. Traditional three marks of the church. What are they? Okay, so ordinances. And baptism is in that. Doctrine, pure doctrine, the pure preaching of the word. Huh? Discipline. Yeah. So discipline. You know, there's a lot of discussion on what are the marks of the church. Um, the pure preaching, the pure doctrine is definitely one. Ordinance is, is definitely one. And most, um, after the time of the Reformation, would have recognized discipline as a, a mark of the church because it's, it's holding together the unity and the purity of the church. So we're looking at um, the ordinances, specifically baptism. We started off by looking, when we introduced ordinances, we started off by looking at Roman Catholicism. And how many ordinances do they practice? Seven. How many do Protestants practice? Two. And what are those two? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then so last week we started to look from the Gospels and the book of Acts at what separates Protestants in regards to baptism. And it's the form of baptism and the recipient of baptism is where you will see a a split amongst Protestants. And so, whereas we would say we believe in the essentials of the gospel and we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a, a difference here on this. So, two, two ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, looking at baptism and specifically uh, from a Baptist perspective what baptism is. And last week as we looked at the gospels and the book of Acts, what we saw is baptism is the initiation into the church. All Protestants agree on that. It doesn't matter what their denomination is. Baptism is your, is your initiation into the church. And as we looked at the, the Gospels and we looked at Acts, the only examples that we saw as we surveyed them were examples of baptism taking place by what type of mode? Immersion. That was the only example that there is. There is no other example other than immersion. You don't find a sprinkling. You don't find anything but immersion in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Further, we saw that the belief preceded baptism in every example. There's no example of a baptism taking place before belief. There is an example of a false profession and a person baptized and he is rejected, but there's no example of um, baptism and then belief. It is always they believed, they repented, and then they were baptized. And so, because of that, because we can't find an example outside of Acts or the Gospels demonstrating unbelief follow, or belief following baptism, we come to the position that believers' baptism by immersion is the only example we see in Scripture. And that is undeniably true. You don't find another example of it in Scripture. But we didn't look at the, um, we didn't look at the epistles. And the epistles are really where you begin to see, I think, what can be considered uh, good argumentation and debate on why there's different 
practices. Um, what I don't want you to hear me say is that, say, a Presbyterian or a Reformed church isn't making biblical arguments. I'm not saying that. I think they are. I just think they're coming to the wrong conclusions on those. But it's, it would be wrong to say that I think that they're not making biblical arguments, because they are. So let's start at Romans chapter 6, and look at what we see here. In verse 2, Paul writes in verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So this is a passage that describes our union with Christ, that we are in Christ, and Paul in writing as a description of what our union with Christ is, what example does he use to illustrate what our union with Christ looks like? What's the illustration in the text that he uses? Union with Christ is something inwardly that takes place. But he uses an illustration to describe what that is. It's baptism. So he, he takes union, our union with Christ, that we are united by the Spirit with Christ, and to describe what that looks like, he uses the illustration of baptism. And he begins by saying this, in our union with Christ, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now a lot of people have a problem with that. How could he say that we have died to sin? Because we still sin, right? What it means is that the dominion of sin is gone in our life. Sin is no longer the controlling factor. We still sin, but we're no longer enslaved to it. In fact, Paul says that prior to Christ in verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin. So to say that we have died to sin doesn't mean we no longer sin. It's just simply to say that sin no longer reigns over my life. It no longer characterizes who I am. And he goes on to say in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So when he says baptized into Christ, that is speaking of our union with Christ. That is speaking of our union in Christ. And he uses that word baptism. Now, it would be interesting for Paul to use this particular word if the practice of baptism was something other than being fully immersed. When you come into union with Christ, are you partly in union with Christ? No, you're immersed in Christ. You're in union with Christ. So it would be interesting for him to use that if it had a different word. We're not brought into a little bit of Christ, but brought into all of Christ. Now, he uses the word baptizo, and when you look that up in, for instance, BDAG, that's the, the most commonly used 
Greek dictionary or lexicon that there is. It defines it this way. It's dip, immerse, plunge, sink, drench, overwhelm. It's used, we see it in Scripture, in those senses except for in two places where the Jews are talking about ceremonial washing. And they use the word baptize for ceremonial washing. They don't even baptize their hands would be the word. And so some might point to that and say, well, that doesn't mean immerse, but it doesn't mean not immerse, because what was the whole idea of the ceremonial cleansing that they would do in washing their hands? To have their hands fully cleansed. And so it doesn't take away from that in those two places. But the predominant use of that word is to dip, immerse, plunge, sink, drench, or overwhelm. That's what the word means. And so Paul uses this to describe this inward reality of coming into Christ. That's good news. Here's here's what would be the bad news. If you're not in full union with Christ, you've got a problem. And so he uses a word that talks about being overwhelmed and being fully in Christ. He goes on in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Christ on the cross dies, goes into the tomb, and what does he do? He comes up out of the tomb. What's the perfect picture in our symbol of recognizing our union with Christ? Is that we die with him, as it says, and then we walk in a newness of life. How many of you would have a fear of someone taking you down and putting your head under water? That can be a fearful thing. I've known a lot of people that before baptism, they were frightened to be baptized because they were scared about being taken down underwater. That's a natural fear. It symbolizes death. But what is symbolized when you come up out of the water? Life. To walk in a newness of of life. And so Paul continues to describe and illustrate what a Christian is by using that same word of baptism. Buried and raised, just like what we do when you go underwater and you come out of it. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, it's speaking of our union with Christ. And in our union with Christ, we died to ourself, our old self, and we have been raised. We walk in a newness of life. In verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be nothing, brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So it speaks of our old self being crucified. What is crucifixion? It's death. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't get crucified and walk away from it. You die when you're crucified. It's an instrument of death. It, it would be the equivalent of saying you went to the gas chamber. That's not a form of punishment. It means it's a death sentence. And so in Christ, in union with Christ, we have a death of self So a couple of things that we have to put together in this text that uses baptism as that illustration is an unbeliever has not died to the old self. An unbeliever cannot 
die. In fact, we're, we're told that the unbeliever is still a slave to sin. An unbeliever is not walking in the newness of life. An unbeliever cannot walk in the newness of life because they have not experienced newness of life. An unbeliever has not raised, been raised from the dead in Christ because Scripture says that they're still dead in their sins and trespasses. An unbeliever has not died to sin. They're still slave to it. This is what Paul says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So he's speaking to believers. And so Baptists would say from this and conclude that the recipients of baptism are to only then be believers. And the proper or regular mode should be immersion. Because that's the only expression we see here. Another passage that is sometimes used to look at in informing the doctrine of baptism is Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 in verse 11. It says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, and with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." Now, when it speaks of here, a circumcision made without hands, is that speaking of something physical or something spiritual? It's speaking of something spiritual. And so, the parallel here is that there's a spiritual circumcision that parallels with baptism. We have to look at this, though, for a second. Let's go back to Genesis and see the institution of this. If you go to Genesis chapter 15, really important key chapters in Genesis is 1 through 50. But if you were going to take a couple that were pretty important to to know well would be chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. Uh, Anyone know what takes place in chapter 12, 15, and 17? Abrahamic covenant. Abraham in chapter 12 is called by God and promised land. Chapter 15, the covenant is made. In chapter 17, it is restated, and the seal of that covenant comes in place. A couple of things. What was the covenantal sign of Israel? Does anyone know? It was circumcision. That was the covenantal sign of circumcision. Um. But if you look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Prior to the covenant being made or circumcision being instituted, Abraham is counted as righteous. Abraham is the man of faith. He's saved by the blood of Christ. 
just as you and I are saved by the blood of Christ. He looked forward to it, as Jesus says, Abraham looked for my day and rejoiced. So he is saved by faith. But then you get to chapter 17, and this covenant, though, is now ratified and it is given. We read this as in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, or your seed, and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So what is Abraham promised in this covenant? Promised progeny. He's promised that kings will come from him. And he is promised land. This is the same thing that he's told in Genesis chapter 12. It's the same thing he's told in Genesis chapter 15. They're connected. They're not different. They're connected, and each one is explaining the other one. And so in this, though, what we see is in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. So there's this expectation that they'll keep the covenant. Verse 10, This is my covenant with you, and shall be keep, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So what is the sign of the covenant? It's circumcision. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought into your house with money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Notice the language of verse 14. It's a play on words. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To be cut off tells us this is a conditional covenant. Now what you see here is this primary promise of land and people is conditioned upon obedience. Abraham is the federal head. Every covenant has a federal head. Adam was the federal head in the garden. Noah is the federal head for all of humanity. Because what was in the Noahic covenant? What did God promise Noah in the Noahic covenant? Not to flood the earth. He was their covenant head. Abraham is the covenant head of, of Israel. Now, what we see is through him, all the nations will be blessed. But there was this requirement of circumcision. So how did that become true? Well, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. 
in verse 10, speaking of Christ. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is teaching us that God has this eternal plan where all of his promises are going to reach their fulfillment in a person, in Christ. You go over to chapter 3, verses 8. Paul writes this, and he's talking about the mystery of the church. He says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, Abraham has this promise that one of his seed will be the one that blesses all nations. Paul says that in Christ, that mystery is unveiled in him. That promise is fulfilled in him. He says in verse 9, And to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what ends up happening is the promises are realized in who? Christ. All of the promises are in Christ. Sam Renahan says this, quote, This covenant provides a descendant who will bless. The Abrahamic covenant provides or promises a descendant who will bless. But it does not provide a relationship to that descendant beyond common genealogy. The descendant will provide blessing, and enjoyment of that blessing will depend on one's relationship to that descendant, not to Abraham. So again, what was in the Abrahamic covenant? What were they promised? Descendants? Land? Nations be blessed? Right? Kings? Now when you look at verse 9 of chapter 7 of Genesis, it says, As for you, you shall keep. This is a command for obedience. One commentator says this, It was ongoing participation in the blessings of Abraham's covenant dependent on obedience to a positive law. What's a positive law? We talked about that a couple weeks back. Anyone remember what a positive law is? Yeah. So a positive law is a law that's not necessarily a moral law, but it's a law that God gives. And because God gives it, it's, it, it becomes a moral thing whether you obey it or not. But uh, we are not commanded certain things that, say, Adam in the garden was commanded of, right? We don't have that option. That's a, that's a positive law. Baptism is a positive law. Positive law because it wasn't given in the old economy. Right? So it's a positive law. But the command is an ongoing participation in it. And that you see then this conditional aspect of it in verse 14. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. And you can see the play on words there. He has done what? Broken my covenant. So they're taken out of it, out of the covenant, which means they don't receive what? The lands, they don't receive any of those things. When you get to the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, there's all of a sudden laws that are attached to the land. You do these laws, and you get blessings. You don't do these laws, you get curses. That was to set apart a land to realize the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And then when David comes, you have the promise of a king that will ensure the keeping of the law of Moses so that they may be able to receive the blessings of what? The Abrahamic covenant. And when they fail to do that, what do they not receive? They, they get the curses. They get the curses instead of they get the blessings. And so what the sign of all of this was, was of circumcision. The promises here are also to Abraham's descendants corporately, not to the individual. It's a corporate promise, and it was fulfilled. You see that in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, that the promise of getting the land actually was fulfilled in Joshua's time. You see the promise of kings. That's repeated to Sarai in verse 16. It's repeated to Jacob. In, verse, in chapter 35. And then Jacob even says that there's going to be a king from which tribe? Which tribe will have, the, have Judah? In chapter 49. And so this promise of kings is all flowing out. But we see the covenant fulfillment. The Abrahamic covenant established Israel as a nation. In the New Testament, the Abrahamic covenant is consistently shown as the Israelites' ethnic identity and that Abraham was the federal head. You see that in several places. Let me give you a few of them. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Their ethnic identity is related to Abraham. Chapter 7 in Stephen's speech, same thing. Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. You see the same thing in Romans chapter 11. You see that in John the Baptist's speech, where he references that. See it in 2 Corinthians. You see it in Hebrews. So the identity of Abraham, according to the flesh, is for the Israelites that they are related to Abraham by flesh. Does that make sense? So they would look out and say, we're children of Abraham. But there's a distinction in Scripture made, isn't there? All are called, that believe in Christ, are called what? And Paul makes the point, not all that call themselves children of Abraham are what? They're not all children of Abraham. And so there's this distinction 
there's two sons and daughters that are recognized in Scripture as being children of Abraham. There are those that are ethnically related to Abraham, and then there are those that are spiritually related to Abraham. How are they spiritually related to Abraham? By faith. By faith. They are then brought in to the family. And so Abraham and Abraham's covenant is a type of a greater covenant that is to come. It's a type of the new covenant, but it's not the new covenant. Now, first of all, what is the new covenant? One thing about the new covenant is this, is that it's not conditioned upon obedience. The Abrahamic covenant was conditioned on what? You shall do these things and receive the blessings. If you don't do these things, what do you not receive? The blessings. It was a conditional covenant. The new covenant is not a conditional covenant. Israel failed in the Abrahamic covenant because of disobedience. They lost the land. So you ask the question, so did, the, did God fail in his promises to Abraham? No, because they're realized in who? Yeah, in the Messiah. God kept his promise. The promise of an eternal reign of a king was fulfilled in Christ. Christ fulfilled all of the conditions. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is that we have our representative, Christ, as our head, that actually fulfills those for us. The Old Covenant itself is gone. It was physical. It was a type of... And there was physical circumcision was the seal of that covenant, but it was itself not the new covenant. In Hebrews, we read this in chapter 9, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a, what? New covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's a clear distinction made here. There's a new covenant, and there was an old covenant. The old covenant brought what? Death. The new covenant brings what? Life. Life. Now, okay, why did we go there from Colossians? If you're wondering, we were still looking at Colossians. Yeah. Going to get there. If we think back at Colossians, it was speaking of a spiritual what? Spiritual circumcision. Speaking of a spiritual circumcision. Is there any idea of a spiritual circumcision that's different than this physical one in the Old Covenant? The answer is yes. Chapter 10 and verse 16 of Deuteronomy, they're told, Israelites told, to circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer. Now here's, here's the problem with that. They're told to do a spiritual thing. 
What's the problem with them doing this to their heart? They can't. They can't do it, but they're told to do it. Well, if you look over in chapter 30, Deuteronomy, verse 5, says this, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. When you survey the Old Testament, do you get the impression that the vast majority of them did not know the Lord? This is why Elijah says, what, there's no one left but me. God says, well, hold on, there's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. When you think of the million, 7,000 is a small number. God had always had a people that he had set aside where he had done a spiritual work on them. And they were within this remnant of being said, saved. It's a spiritual act. And in this spiritual act, notice what is granted in it. God will do this spiritual act so that you will be obedient. God does this that enables obedience. When he tells them to do it, guess what they can't do? They can't do it themselves. Actually, what you see here is a forward-looking of what the new covenant's going to look like because this is the same thing that's promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 31, is that there will be a people in the new covenant. It says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, it was a conditional covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer each one teach his neighbor and each one brother saying, Know the Lord. In the old covenant, they might have had the sign of circumcision, but they did not know the Lord. And so, therefore, you would go to your neighbor and say, know the Lord. But in the New Covenant, if you're in the New Covenant, you don't say that to your neighbor anymore. Because only those that are in the New Covenant know the Lord. In the Old Covenant, there were those that knew the Lord, and there were those that did not know the Lord. The explicit promise of the New Covenant, whether it's in Deuteronomy, or whether it's in Ezekiel, or whether it's here in Jeremiah is that they actually know the Lord. It says, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And in the New Covenant, you see also the promise of a new mediator. We see this in Isaiah 42, verse 6, which is speaking of Christ. I am the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. God will send one that will be a new mediator. What was the promise of being in union with Christ that we saw in Romans chapter 6? There was something that no longer had dominion over the believer. What was it? Sin. Doesn't that sound like the fulfillment of the new covenant promise? That I will be their God. I will put my law upon their heart. And then when we get and read about what it is to be in a relationship with Christ, we realize, oh, there's something different in us now. Uh, From when I did not know Christ to when I do know Christ, we die to sin. The promise of the new covenant was to walk in a newness of life, which we are given. So what is the promise of Colossians? Well, when you look at Colossians and what it talks about, it too says this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We see new life is promised in Christ. Being raised from the dead and guaranteed obedience. So thus again, when we look at the epistles, and I I understand there's, there's there's some other important passages that we did not get to because of time. Romans 4, 11 through 18 would be good to look at. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 would be good to look at. But just looking at this briefly this evening, we again see that baptism is for the one that confesses Christ. The new covenant is not a mixed covenant. So only those that are believers would receive the sign of the covenant. If there's a parallel between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in terms of the sign, what's the sign of the New Covenant? What's the sign of the Old Covenant? If there is a, if there is a parallel between those, and I think there is, it's not physical circumcision. It's spiritual circumcision. It's regeneration. I know that that is a lot that we just covered. But it's important we think about these things. This is actually what Baptists before us have argued for hundreds and hundreds of years. So baptism is for the one that confesses Christ. Baptism is for the one that is walking in a newness of life. Baptism is for the one that has confessed Christ. Because in the New Covenant, there are only those that know the Lord. Therefore, only those that know the Lord receive the covenant sign. Which is not circumcision, but is baptism. lot to chew on for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a newness of life that we may have in Christ, and we thank you how our baptism is a symbol of that, and it announces to the world uh, in a visible way what Christ has done to us, uh, done for us and on the inside. And Father, I pray that as we look to your word and we look to your promises, we are reminded that you 
are a covenant-keeping God. And that, Father, we praise you that in the new covenant, it is conditioned upon the work of one, and that is the work of Christ, for we know we fall short of it. We praise you, and we thank you for your mercies to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.